Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us up through the curtain that is through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, we are right back in our More series where we have been recalibrating our hearts to the glory of God. And here what we've seen is, is that our culture has a number of isms, as we've talked about, that seek to shape your heart and the way that you want what you want. Uh, So I believe all of us have been created by God with this desire for more. But we live in a culture that is trying to take the reins of those desires and steer them away from the things that God wants us to pursue towards the things that uh, this world wants us to pursue. And so we talked about the way that materialism is one of those isms that shapes us, that belief that all that matters is matter. And, and all that is really important are physical things, spiritual things don't exist. Uh, we talked about consumerism, that idea that really the purpose of life is just to get more stuff. Uh, I mean, right? Don't you always just feel like your big screen TV on your wall is just a few inches away from bringing you real long and and, and, uh, undeniable joy in life? If I just had like a few more inches, man, things would be so much better. Uh, And then we also have talked about individualism. And of course, individualism is that belief that uh, your pursuit really in life uh, ought to be for yourself above all else. I I don't think any of these uh, perhaps... Uh, is more influential or important for us to think about uh, when we think about the, the love that we are called to have for, lo- for one another. Uh, but we need to admit that these three, they work together in a powerful triad that really seeks to cause us to look to the self and getting more stuff for us rather than loving others. So individualism uh, is something that is pervasive in our culture. And it has led our culture, I believe, to becoming the most radically individualistic and loneliest culture ever. Maybe you're wondering this morning, how can I have so many Facebook friends and feel so lonely? But studies actually have shown that, that we are a people that though we are so connected, we seem to be worse and worse at communities. So recent studies have shown that we have a greater interest in education, and yet uh, we have fewer participating in the PTA. More people are interested in religion, but fewer join churches. And even a recent study out of Duke found that most people join mega churches because they value anonymity. Now, just to clue you in, if you, if you value anonymity, anonymity works against community. Uh, community is about communing and knowing one another. And so if you don't want to be known, then, then that says, I don't want community. Or maybe you want the benefits without the responsibility. Even, even our bowling leagues are hurting. And bowling alone, Robert Putman says, uh, more people are bowling than ever, but fewer are bowling in leagues. And you know you have a problem with individualism because almost everyone, you'll notice, carries an iPhone, not a Wii phone. 
Thank you for humoring the pastor. But things have gotten as bad for meaningful community as that joke. In fact, I meet people regularly in Phoenix who are angry or sad about this pervasive sense of loneliness. And so we need to know as a people that Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, as for us, because catch this, our battle for meaningful community is as much spiritual as it is cultural. It's a spiritual battle that's being waged. And so we need to understand that we need community. I mean, even the Lone Ranger needed Tonto. And as Christians, God has made us for others, and we can't deny that. And so this morning, what we're going to find in our text is a helpful anecdote to help us recalibrate our hearts away from that self-deceived notion that we can live alone. And this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus' greater love for us propels us to provoke more love in others. That greater love that Jesus has shown for us propels us to show more love for others and to stir them up. So we're in Hebrews. Hebrews is a book, if you were to to read through it, we think it's a sermon, and it would take about 45 minutes just to read it straight through. So that seems to be about what that sermon was. And you'll notice that since chapter 4 of Hebrews, what the author has been doing is he has been unpacking the, the nature and reality of how Jesus is better. He's better than all kinds of things, but specifically, he's going to land in our text this morning on two things. He's better than the sacrifices that were offered in the past, and he's better than the great high priest of the past. He is a better mediator for you and more, uh, you and me this morning. And you'll notice in this text that we're looking at, there are no I's or me's, but it's littered with let us's. So he's talking to a church. And he's saying, you as a group, I have a message for you. This isn't just for you as an individual, but for you as part of something more, as part of a body. And here what he's going to tell us is, through this therefore, that Jesus being the better sacrifice and high priest is important for the way that we live life together. So he's talking to the church. But first thing we're going to see this morning in the text is this. That we have more and better access to God because Jesus. That's right. We have more and better access to God because Jesus. That's why. And and that's what he opens up with in our our first verses. And this is the ground that he's going to really press us into. Making sure you understand this before you understand why and how you need to live differently. So he starts off in verses 19 to 21 telling us who we are before he ever begins to tell us what we ought to do. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then let us do these things, right? So he starts out with, like, here is who you are in Christ and what's been done for you. Uh, Don't, like, pass, go, or collect $200. Stop, meditate, hear what has been done for you. Now this therefore, of course, points back to the case that he started in chapter 4 for Jesus being the better sacrifice and high priest for you and me. But he gives us the Cliff Notes version here in our text this morning, telling us how he's going to build out of that. What he says is, this Jesus has brought us more and better access with God. 
Of course, the brothers that he's speaking to tells us that this text is being spoken to Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and his work for us. And he tells them, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can do these things. Now, uh, let me just stop right there. Because I might have lost like half of you when you first read this text. Because when it says that we are Christians who have confidence, your immediate response is, I don't have confidence this morning. Like, I actually feel a little bit discouraged. So when I read that, I just wonder, is this really for all Christians? And and specifically, is this for Christians like me who struggles with doubts? Now, if you're discouraged this morning, maybe this verse has just made you feel like an outsider because he's talking to these confidence Christians. Maybe you struggle for confidence for a number of different reasons. You could be this morning struggling in your confidence with God and what he's done for you because of sins that you've committed maybe even today. And you're wondering if all bets are off. It could be that sins have been committed against you. Or, Or maybe it's that you've just seen the sin in the world all around you. Or you feel like you've got these prayers that you've lifted up day after day, week after week that have gone unanswered. And this morning, confidence just wouldn't be necessarily the the adjective that you would use or pick on your own to describe yourself. Maybe this morning you struggle with discouragement and doubts. But friends, if you lack confidence, come in close. I believe this text is for you. See, I actually understand the word that's translated into confidence here to speak more of the objective ground than our subjective feeling of confidence. So commentator H. Schleier describes this word for confidence and hear what he says about it. He says that really it's freedom of access to God, authority to enter the sanctuary, openness for the new and living way which Jesus has bolstered open for us. I mean, do you see it? You, you may not feel it subjectively right now, but Christ has, in real time, opened up for us a new objective confidence and reality and authority to enter into God's presence. We have free access to God. And you might be thinking, I don't feel that way. Well, isn't it great that it's true that we really do have that access? And so friends, that's good news for Christians who are lacking confidence. And all the more if you consider the the Old Testament backdrop of the Day of Atonement. See, what we know here is, is that more access to commune with God comes to us. And, And in such a way that we have more access than anyone's ever had to the presence of God. And more than the Old Testament saints, more than Aaron himself, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. See, in the Old Testament, the the temple represented God living with His people in a house. He he dwelt among them. His presence, His house was with them. And behind in that house, what we'd find in the middle of it was a place called the Holy of Holies that had a curtain. And behind that curtain, we find the Ark of the Covenant. And it's there at that Ark of the Covenant that it was believed that God most fully dwelt with His people. The only problem with that curtain was it was huge it was a huge curtain it was very weighty and and thick and it it was there to symbolize the fact that most people 
would never be able to get into that full presence of God here on earth. And that curtain said, uh, come on close, but stay back, right? And, and so for uh, so many years and centuries, what we find is, is that that curtain, they would have a priest. One priest, once a year, probably once in his lifetime, would be invited, if he won the casting of lots, to go into this place, this room, to be in the presence of God and offer up special prayers and maybe even some selfish prayers before the presence of Almighty God. Very unique experience. And this experience was so meaningful that they would actually take a rope and tie it around his ankle as he would go in, just in case he died while he was in there meeting with God, so they could drag his dead corpse out. They couldn't go, they couldn't just go in to get this dead body, they had to pull him out because this was a special presence of God. You didn't just ease up on God. It was hard to get into the presence of God. Impossible for many to ever draw near to God. And How awkward did it have to be to tie that knot around that guy's ankle? Reflecting that like if this is the last time we see you, we're going to have to drag you out. I mean, that would have made me a little bit nervous to go into the Holy Holies. I don't know about you. But catch this, that sacrifice that was offered once he got in there for the people on that Day of Atonement, as he sprinkled it over the altar, never satisfied God's wrath for man's sin. See, more sacrifices were offered for individuals daily and another sacrifice for the people of God on the next Day of Atonement. So more sacrifices were offered again and again. But catch what Hebrews says here. He says here, that we need to have our hearts bolstered with the incredible confidence that Jesus is the better sacrifice who laid His life down on the cross to save us from our sins and satisfy the wrath of God, catch this, once for all. It's been opened up and opened up in such a way that it's not being closed back again. Jesus is that better sacrifice for you and me. Now here's the deal. I think that some of us walk around like we have an, a rope tied around our ankles. Like we are going into the presence of God fearful that He's going to smite us down if we draw near to Him because of who we are, because of sins that we've committed. We are fearful of the presence of God. We don't realize the access. We don't appreciate the access. We don't find joy in our hearts over the access that we have with our great God. It's because we've forgotten that Jesus is the better sacrifice and priest. He is so much better. You don't need, friends, hear me, you don't need to live better to please God. You need to believe better. Some of us, I mean, I I have this friend who's a non-Christian who always tells me if I could just get better, I'd I'd come to church, but I'm just not ready yet. I'm like, you're never going to get ready enough, holy enough to come before a holy God. You need Jesus. Some of us lack confidence even as Christians because our lives don't look good and and we want to clean up ourselves before we go to God or draw near to God, but Jesus didn't come. Friends, He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners, and only sinners can come to Him. This doesn't mean that Christians don't need to repent of their sins. We do. But catch this. If our lives look bad, it probably started with a deficiency in what we believe about Jesus. If we have something going on with our lives, the bigger issue is how do we view Jesus? Have we really considered the height and depth of the love of God for us in Christ? That's where we begin. And if we miss that, everything else is going to fall apart. But if we get that, people start to come together. You see it? 
And so if your life looks bad, we need to look at what it is that we are believing about ourselves and Jesus. You know, we were going through Matthew the other night in family devotions, and we're talking about Jesus' command for us to love one another and even to love our enemies. And uh, we started talking about it, and my eight-year-old, or my 10-year-old son, Benjamin, was talking about it, and he said, and I, I just asked him, I said, how different do you think our family would look if even in, in our home, we started to love each other in this way that Jesus calls us to love our enemies? Like, if we took this incredibly seriously, and Benjamin said, man, what a world that would be, right? Benjamin's got a lot of, uh, you know, he's, he communicates well. And he says, what a world that would be. He says, you know, I mean, that would be a world where we always got along and sang together and laughed and never fought. And you know what? I would never have to, like, pop Johnny in the head because Johnny would never be a jerk and make me do it. Right? What a world that would be to live in. I was like, that's, that's not just true for kids. That's true for adults, man. I mean, what a world where we actually follow through on this great command of loving others, but it all begins with us first understanding the love that Christ has had for you and me. And so think about how these things would change in our lives if we were, like here we are commended to do in Hebrews 10, verses 19, and, uh, 19 20, and 21, to, to really press into considering what has been made available to us in Christ. If we really were to wake up in the mornings seeking to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Jesus for you and me, things would change. But not only is Jesus the better sacrifice, He's also a better high priest who has given us unprecedented access to God. And Hebrews 8.1 says that Jesus, friends, He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now, Now don't miss this. He's not just in the earthly temple where the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be the footstool of God. He is now in heaven, and the temple that that temple pointed to, sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father, mediating, advocating for you and me. So when you're praying to God, and when you're drawing near to Him, there's a nearness that we are invited into that is unlike anything they knew in the Old Testament. Christ has made a way. And He invites you and me to draw near. I mean, God's throne room was bolted shut until Jesus came, and He has opened it wide open for you and me. I don't know about you and about your feelings towards access and the things that you probably should not be into or you feel like you don't belong into. Um, When I was younger, when somebody told me I was not supposed to be somewhere, that's exactly where I wanted to be. And so when I was younger, I had this store and it's almost like God providentially put it next door to me to create this scenario where he could sanctify me. It was an old store from the 1800s. It had been shut up for decades and it had all kinds of cool stuff inside. And we just really struggled, me and my buddies, how can we get in there to look at this stuff? Well, we figured out that you could actually climb a tree and you could go up to the roof and there's a little window that you could climb through and you could get in. And so we did this one day and I remember when we got in there, We were in there for maybe three minutes before we were looking down the double barrel of a shotgun and an older gentleman telling us, boys, you're not supposed to be here. Now, the gun said it enough, but I mean, it was helpful to have the words to explain, right? And in that moment, I just, I realized like really profoundly, like, yeah, he's right. We really shouldn't be here. I think this is like illegal or something. But friends, 
What's amazing to me is, is that this throne room of God that has been forever closed off to us has been now been opened. And how many of us really value that entrance like we would if it was still closed off? Maybe we just haven't really understood what it means for that door to be wide open, that we are now freely, we can come through, and God's not sitting on the other side of it with a shotgun waiting to shoot us. No, he's waiting to welcome us as children and say, I've been waiting forever for you. I gave my son to bring you here. I had him shed his blood willingly on your behalf so that I could have this conversation right now. What took you so long? Friends, that's the way that God approaches us in Hebrews. Access, wide open. But there's a second thing that we see in this text. Remember this. He begins with who, what your access is, who you are in Christ. This is, you need to know these things about yourself before I ever tell you what to do. Don't start with what to do. Let's start with who you are. Now that we know who you are, now let me tell you what kind of life erupts out of that. And he says, secondly, that more access means our local church should do three things. More access means our, church, our local church should do two things. We see this in verses 22 to 25. Now first, he tells us to pursue more of God's presence. Pursue more of God's presence. Now I, I recently went to Israel and had the opportunity to lay eyes on the synagogues that were, were scattered all around the area that, that Jesus went in Galilee and uh, preached the gospel around the Sea of Galilee. And I got to visit the places where Jesus taught and, and the places where he would have uh, seen people. I saw where Mary Magdalene was actually converted, where she was released of the demons, and then sat and heard him teach. I saw the pools that surrounded uh, all of those synagogues where they would have washed daily to come into the presence of God. Uh, by the way, they were big enough to do cannonballs in. And so they were, they were washing many times a day just to come into the very presence of God. I got to see models of the tabernacle and the temple where the sacrifices were being offered continuously. But because Jesus is the better sacrifice and the better high priest, verse 22 says, because you have him, now let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to what? Draw near to God. Now, don't miss the significance of this. When he says, I want you to draw near to me with a true heart, a true heart is a new heart. A true heart is a new heart. In other words, th- this new community that he is speaking to, that has experienced this new high priest and this new sacrifice, uh, they all have new hearts and a full assurance or complete devotion that he describes here signals that that new covenant that Jeremiah 31 and uh, Ezekiel 36 promised us has landed. That new covenant has touched down on this community. And you might be saying, like, well, what does that mean? Well, just look at Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Pull those up. It's amazing what you'll find there. In this Jeremiah 31, we get a, a picture, a snapshot of what this new covenant that the prophet saw coming would look like. He says, when it shows up, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So the laws in the hearts, catch that. Uh, Also, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, he adds this. He says, uh, and, and on that day with that covenant, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, your idolatry. And I will give you a new heart. And catch this, and a new spirit I will put within you 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, here's why that's important. True, through the prophets, God promised to give his new covenant community new hearts, which translates into the Holy Spirit indwelling them and driving their lives to holiness. So sprinkling and washing in this picture really point to the inward work and then to the outward work. So the, the sprinkling seemed to, seems to speak of the regeneration of the heart in, in Hebrews. You have an inward work where God, God comes in and raises you from spiritual death to life so that you see who God is and believe that Jesus is who He says He is. And then this washing that He speaks of the majority view is that this is actually that outward symbol of baptism. Now you remember we talked about baptism last week, but baptism really is just an outward display of an inward reality. It shows that heart circumcision has taken place, that you've received the Holy Spirit, that you are part of this new covenant community. So catch this, Hebrews here is calling all of us into a life of drawing increasingly near to God, both individually and collectively. From that first time that you put your faith in Jesus until the day that Jesus returns. So you might be asking, how do I draw near to God? Well, we draw near to God in a number of different ways in the New Testament. We draw near to God when we first put our faith in Jesus. Uh, We go from being far from Him to being in Christ. Uh, We draw near to God when we pray for help. And the Holy Spirit actually helps us to pray in ways that we know not. We draw near to God when we are putting the deeds of the flesh, sins that we struggle with, to death. That's a drawing near to God. We we flee Satan and we draw near to God. We seek to obey Jesus, living unto God, doing what He has commanded us positively to do. We draw near to God when we meet together. Don't miss this. When you meet together, you individually draw near to God with others, with the local church, Sunday after Sunday. Or when you take part of community groups, we are drawing near to God. And so Jesus means that our lives can be about far more than we can imagine. We can have more and more of His presence until the day that He returns. That's what it means to draw near to God. So we need to do that. But also notice that He says, hold the confession more tightly in verse 23. Hold the confession more tightly. There He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope Without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. I think J.A. Lee, who studied the 14 uses of this word for let us consider, right? With our our minds. is helpful here. And, And he says that a better definition of let us consider would be to direct our minds, to direct them, towards and and to reflect on. So in other words, we need to to meditate on, we need to study our brothers and sisters in Christ. Become students of them. Students of their strengths and their weaknesses. Joys and sorrows. And their needs. All in order not, not to gossip about them, but to spur or even provoke them to love and good deeds. So we're thinking about them with their good, their holistic good in mind for the glory of God. Now I know that when you think about provoke, provoke can be bad, right? 
Um, one of the hardest verses in the Bible for me is Ephesians 6, 1, uh, where parents are told not to provoke their children. Like, I just find that to be incredibly fun. And so, but I'm told I'm not supposed to do that, right? And so I'm constantly trying to learn not to provoke them and enjoy it, especially, right? And so that's something I'm dealing with. You got your stuff. But here provoke is actually used in a good way, where you're called to provoke good things out of someone. So here, it speaks of positive stimulation or motivation. We're looking to motivate others to do good and to love others. So the listeners are to motivate one another to love that is expressed in good deeds. Now check this out. Because Jesus is a better sacrifice and high priest, Hebrews tells us to press into the community of the local church. Seems strange to you? He says, press into them for love and good works. Now, why is that so important? It's because you might be thinking, like, how can I do anything good? I'm a sinner. He says, because I'm a better high priest and sacrifice. I've sent you to do good, and you can. You're not, you're not tainted by sin in such a way anymore that you can't bring glory to me. You have been washed in better blood. And so Jesus turns us away from a life of seeking more for ourselves to seeking more for others. And not only that, catch how verse 25 says, you have to show up to stir up. Did you catch that? You have to show up to stir up, right? You can't vicariously stir up. You can't email it in. You can't Facebook the stir up. You, you got to be there in bodied presence to stir up others. And apparently he says that some were loving others less as time passed. So even in the days of Hebrews, way before Sunday football, people had stopped going to church. Did you see that? Uh, we don't want you to not meet together all the more as you see the day approaching as some have done. Like who are those some who have done it? Well, there were some real people who stopped coming to church, stopped stirring one another up towards love and good works. This is just in the first century. It would have been in the, the days when they still had people around who had seen Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And they are already saying, I'm just, I'm just a little bit tired of meeting together with God's people. Now to be fair, they were being persecuted for their faith. If you read on down in Hebrews, you'll find in verses 33 to 34, they were being persecuted for their faith. And they were going through difficult times to stir one another up. And maybe they decided that they weren't sure that all of it was worth it. In verse 35, he's so concerned about them that he says, he tells them not to throw their confidence away. Don't throw your confidence away. Well, what is that confidence? It's that, it's that confidence that what God has done uh, was for them. That new access has been opened up. Don't walk away from that. And that's connected to the way that they love other Christians. So he's trying to rally these Christians to encourage one another towards love and good works. He desires more Christians to provoke more love and good works and more Christians more and more as they see the day when Jesus ushers in even more of His presence. Do you see it? He, he, he wants to provoke and stimulate more love in this body to awaken them to what they've been called to. And by my calendar, it looks like Jesus is even closer to returning today than He ever has been before. Is that you? Like, how do you know that? It's because this is the next day, right? And every day after, we're a little bit closer to Jesus coming back. And maybe you didn't know this, but it's important to God for you to join a local church of real, tangible, embodied, messy people for the glory of God. 
It's important. God wants you to attend faithfully and to stir one another up. And he, and he draws that message straight from the throne room of heaven. He says, I want you to, to be part of the spiritual good of others. Christian, every one of us, this message has come to. He says, I, I'm, I'm telling you your mission and your purpose. You are to stir one another up to good works and good deeds. Now, let me just ask you, who is this one another that he speaks of? Just look to your left and to your right. Come on, go ahead, do it. These are real people. I'm not asking you to Facebook them later and see what they look like. Just look around. These are actual people. These are actual people, many of whom have experienced a miracle of God's saving grace in their lives such that they have become part of the heavenly family of God. And God says, what I want for you is for you to pay attention to them. This is my body. I want you to love them in the way that I love them. And I want you to encourage them to look more and more like me. I want them to look like the family. Show them what that looks like. And that happens in all kinds of ways. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I, man, like, do I really have a job? Well, I love what Baptist Foundations, uh, a book that we've been going through in our internship says. Jonathan Lehman there says that membership is actually an office of the church in the same way that elders and deacons are an office. You may be thinking, well, that's not true. But what is an office when you think about it, but, but a role that you've been given where you have duties, obligations, and responsibilities? And so do you think that in the church, the only people that have duties, obligations, and responsibilities are elders and deacons? Do you? Do members have no duties, responsibilities, and obligations as Christians for other Christians? You sound confused. Well, let me tell you. I'll, I'll get to it. So when you get to the New Testament, what you find is, is that if, if that's the way we're defining office, that the Bible is actually replete. It's full of examples of what it looks like to be a Christian loving other Christians in committed community. In fact, if you really take it that way, the Bible says more about what it looks like to be a church member than it does to say about what it looks like to be a church elder or deacon. I mean, think about it. When you look through it, you'll find that the Bible has over, you know, it has 61 and others that describe what it looks like to live in a committed relationship with other Christians together, members of one body. And then you realize that the New Testament might speak more about this office than any other. So, friends, what this means is, and what God wants you to know this morning is, is that you're more than a fan of Jesus in your body. You're a committed member. We're responsible for one another. You, you were made for much, much more than just watching the activity of God amongst His people. You were made to be part of it, engaged in it for the glory of His name. And so God calls all of us to stir one another up to love and good works. That is a duty for every church member. So maybe you're wondering, how do I do this from where I am? Well, maybe this morning you're here and you're a non-Christian. And I want you to know that when we invite you to put your faith in Jesus, because there's no more important decision that you make than that, becoming united with Christ and His work for you, where He has died on a cross in your place and forgiven you of your sins so that you can be in right relationship with God, a new community with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We want you to know that that's not just a thing that we're asking you to do with God. We're asking you to be part of God's forever family here. We want to love you. We want to be committed to you in relationship in the way that God has called us to. 
And so friends, if you're not a Christian, we'd like to encourage you to come and join this body. And the first step of that is being baptized, being uh, outwardly professing what has inwardly happened to you, that your heart's changed. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. But maybe you're a Christian here and you're not part of a church, not a member. Why not? Friends, I want you to know that Jesus calls you to do all kinds of things that we mean by membership here, and they're really all completely biblical things. You might say, well, I don't know if the word members is used in the Bible. Uh, well, we are called to be members of one body, so it is. Uh, but maybe that's not good enough for you because you think that's universal church. So let me just tell you what we mean. Uh, we have a word membership that we just use to help us dis- really describe what all of these love words mean that are given all throughout the New Testament. It's just the word that we use. And of course, a church that's named Trinity Bible Church would understand this, right? Trinity's never used in the Bible, and yet we believe the Trinity is a pretty important doctrine. When we speak about membership, what we are talking about really is Jesus' call on your life to submit to elders of a church. In other words, you are officially saying, I I want you to be a a leader in my life in the way that God has told me that I need because He says it's good for my soul. Uh, You need to be in those relationships where you are holding one another accountable spiritually, committed in that relationship. In a way that, that isn't just every Christian that's ever existed. You need to provoke one another to love and good works. You, you need to provide for pastors. The Bible says it. I'm okay with that. You need to love one another in such a way that communicates the love of Jesus to a lost and dying world. How do you communicate? How do you love one another in such a way that people are actually able to look in and say that, oh, that's actually a body. And they're like something together. And they're doing something in time and space regularly enough and consistently enough that when we look in, we say, okay, they're a body, they're a unique individual, but also they are loving consistently one another in a way that says that these are followers of Jesus. I don't think that's just a one-time meeting. That is a consistent kind of thing that people are seeing happening and playing out in real time. And how can you do things outside of a committed relationship? How can you do these things? You know, when I think about church membership, I think about um, relationships between men and women. And I'm struck as a pastor. I do a lot of counseling with men and women um, who are in relationships, good or bad. And I often see this relationship where um, a, a man comes in with a woman and he's saying something to the effect of, I love you so much, way too much to marry you. I mean, I don't want that whole official apparatus around us. I mean, love is free and wild. And so I think the most loving thing for me to do is not to commit to you and maybe to see others. Friends, let me just tell you, that does not work in relationships. Let me tell you another relationship that doesn't work in, a stalker relationship. A stalker relationship where you perhaps are a guy that drives around peeking on a woman, right? And imagine in your mind that y'all are in a relationship and that she's the woman of your dreams and that she loves you in the way that you love her and you've never talked to her or seen her in person, right? Now, what would you say about somebody that says, I love this woman and we're in a relationship and yet she says, I don't know who you are. You would say that, guys, crazy. And yet we have so many people that say, I love the church, but I will not commit to a local church because those people are so weird, right? And we imagine ourselves as loving a body that is not real. And what God, what Jesus says is, how can you love the Father who you can't see if you can't love your brother who you can? 
Like this is where we see ourselves becoming sanctified, dealing with other sinners like you and me in a relationship where we can't just like walk away because we got tired of it. Friends, that's where God does his best work. No relationships, human work that way. See, we, we've been called to commit ourselves to real relationships with real people. And so let me just encourage you. God wants you to be part of a church. And, and that being part of a church is an expression not of organizational structure, but of love. He wants you to, to be in a love relationship that's committed. So if you're not part of a, a church, if you're not joined in a member, let me just encourage you, uh, join a church. You know, when you're in college, a great time to join a church. Start being a member actually living in the life of a church and taking ownership of what it means to be a believer. If you're here, you've been coming for a while, and you're like, I don't know if I need to join a church, I would say you need to join a church. You need to find a healthy church that preaches the gospel, that holds one another accountable, and join it for the glory of God. It is good for you spiritually because it's the way that God's made it. But maybe you're this morning and you're like, well, I am a church member, so what do I do? Well, let me encourage you to do a number of things. Church members, you can pull out your pens, and this is a great time to just think about these things and pray about these things. Maybe something to talk about in your community group later, which is one of our points. First, show up early and ready to stir others up, right? Show up ready and early to stir others up. You know, just think about it. When, when you show up and you just slip in for the last, I mean, the, the last part of the first song, hey, I'm not, I'm not hitting on that. I'm, I'm glad you're here. But I want you to know you're missing something. You're missing an opportunity to stir others up towards love and good works. And let me just tell you, whatever um, bit of uh, distraction you've had in that morning, it's not worth the opportunities that you have when you show up early to encourage one another, to stir them up, to provoke them towards love and good works. You have to show up to be able to stir up, right? And so you could just maybe be missing an opportunity to stir another brother or sister up in Christ who might be discouraged and need prayer. Or maybe there's somebody here who's confused and needs counsel, and they could use a word from you. Or maybe there's someone here serving. Somebody else didn't show up because they were sick, and, and they need you to serve with them, to help them to take on that, that burden. Or maybe it's that someone needs encouragement. You know, it could be, and this is the fun time, somebody comes and they're excited because God's done something neat in their life, and they want to share it with somebody, and you get to just be excited with them. You ever seen that? That, that stirs people up. Like, thank you. I wasn't made to experience God alone. I get to share this with you. And if you show up early, you get to be part of that experience. If you don't, you miss it. Sad. See, we are called to stir one another up in all of these kinds of ways. Stir one another up. Encouraging them about spiritual things that we see in them. Ways that we see God using others. Evidence of God's grace touching down in their lives. We point those things out. Stir them up. Sunday mornings, we look for places to help people who are already serving. And do it like you're the bride at a wedding and not the bride at a funeral. You know what I mean by that? When you serve, we we serve like it's a good day and not a bad day. We're happy about serving. Because it's a privilege to serve God and His people. Because we have access. It's been opened up to us with God through Jesus. And now we get to serve Christ's people. Nothing better than that. So do you know how much movement we would get if we really stirred one another up in the ways that God has called us to. Now, second, let me encourage you. When you stir up, I want all of you to be able to stir up with great force. Now, here's what I mean by that. There are different kinds 
of stirs that can be used. Uh, you've seen the coffee stirs at McDonald's. Very small. Very, very good and important and, and sufficient for jobs. But it's hard to row a boat or to stir, or, you know, row a boat with a straw, right? Not as much force and momentum. If you're anything like me, you want to stir with like a, a, an oar of a boat, right? I mean, I want to get this party going. I want to get some movement, right? And what does the Bible say about the ability to stir? What is it that we are using to stir? Because we're stirring something that's already there. The Holy Spirit being in somebody. We want to get that aroused in someone, encourage that in somebody. How do we do that? Well, it's through the Word of God. And so if we want to graduate from, you know, one of those coffee straws up to a, an oar of a boat, it means that we need to pour ourselves into the Bible. We need to Bible up to be able to stir others towards love and good deeds. See, that's why we need to be involved in all kinds of opportunities where we can be preparing ourselves to stir others up towards love and good deeds. You are preparing. You are being equipped for something. When you go to Sunday school, when you go to one of our equipping classes, like our E1 classes, Sunday school, or you go to our E2 classes, or whenever you're part of our biblical council classes, or maybe you're uh, saying, you know what, I'm, I'm wanting to do this one-to-one Bible reading discipleship class that's coming up with Dan next weekend. When you're doing those things, that is not just to get you like fat with knowledge. God is in those moments preparing, equipping you for a conversation that is coming. That He has already set forth on your calendar, even though you don't know about it, so that you are ready to stir someone another up towards good works, or perhaps take somebody who is spiritually dead and give them spiritually life through the hearing of the gospel. You see that? Like we're we're already getting ready for something that's going to happen. God is sending us out, and we need to be ready for when that moment shows up. When the moment shows up, are you going to be ready to stir up somebody else? See, we have all kinds of opportunities to do that. I know other people look at other ways that they want to encourage others spiritually. Real popular movement right now uh, towards mysticism and that kind of thing. I remember I was uh, in a group recently where um, we were having uh, sort of a a quiet time in the woods. Um, It wasn't weird like it sounds. It was a retreat. And we were encouraged to go out in nature and meditate on what God might say to us. And so one girl comes back and she says... You know what? I, I saw this little red leaf, and it was it was in a tree, and I, I thought about it, and I realized that through that little red leaf, uh, God was telling me that He loves me. And um, and I looked at that, and I was thinking to myself, well, "That's interesting." And uh, and so then I, I sort of I, I dropped back and I said, "You know, well, God really He actually spoke to me on my walk as well, but He spoke to me through His Word, uh, John three sixteen, that said, "For God so loved the world." That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I was reminded of 1 John uh, 3.16 as well, where he says, By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and that we ought to lay down our lives for other brothers. And in Romans 8.5.8, where God says, But God shows his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the, the point to that is, is that what we need to get stirred up towards loving good works is not little red leaves. We need the word of God from the throne room of God. That's what God's equipped us with. And so friends, let me just encourage you. Find one of these trainings that we have. Sign up. Show up. And grow up. Like this is all for the good of your soul so that you can be used by God for others. Not only that, uh, join a community group. You know, and when you go to this community group, you find one. We've got a board out back. 
show up with the anticipation that you are going to stir up someone, someone else. You're not just going for what you get out, right? You're, you're going for what you can put into the glory of God. So go ready to encourage others. That's where discipleship happens. And finally, remember this as you go to stir up. Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. True love, I don't want to, to leave you with any false pretense. If you're really going to love like Jesus does, it's sacrificial. There's nothing with more joy But there's also nothing more costly than the kind of love that Jesus shows. So maybe when you love others, you might be sort of hitting the eject button because it doesn't feel the way that you expect it to. You feel like it's costing you something, and so you fail to serve or to stir up others because you're like, whoa, that just got hard. I don't want hard, I wanted love. And love's not hard. It's love that took Jesus to the cross. And so remember that love, in Jesus' way, It's costly. It is going to cost you. Please hear me. It is going to cost you time and money and comfort and sometimes sanity. Uh, Your self-image, it's not always going to make you feel better about yourself. Sometimes it's going to show true things about you that are hard. And it's going to take your energy. It's costly. And that's when, in those costly moments, that we look most like Jesus who laid down His life to draw us near to God. Do you see it? And that's a kind of costly love that God's invited you and me to show so that we can draw others near to God. See, we look like Jesus in that. We look like Jesus when we're serving like Dick Barnett, helping with benevolence. Folks in hard places, stirring them up towards love and good works. When Clara goes and visits folks who are in the hospital or homebound, she is stirring them up towards love and good works. When Brendan Burroughs is coming and serving on Saturday morning, getting ready for music to lead us and to, to serve us in that way, he's, he's stirring us up. And Scott Schneider organizes greeters to make visitors feel welcome. Or when Toby, our newest member, helps out Pete this past weekend move, he's stirring, we're stirring one another up. It's serving and loving in costly kind of ways. Do you see it? And John Mead, when he leads a community group, he is serving in a costly kind of way to the glory of God. Friends, there's no better place to be than serving God's people. Uh, One of the things that we've been doing throughout the sermon series is having somebody come and share a testimony about uh, each of the topics. And this morning's topic is more love, and I'm actually going to have the prettiest girl in the church come and share a testimony. Uh, My wife. Uh, Like, that sounded scandalous. It's my wife. Now, you can disagree with me. That's okay. But she's the prettiest to me. And so, Carrie, come on up. Uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about having Kiri come up here for, uh, not only that I like to look at her, but also because um, I'm really encouraged that Kiri has such a great love of the church. Like, that's not an act. Like, we're at home alone, and she's like, Josh, I'm just, I'm just struck by how much I love our church. And I can't tell you how that brings joy to my soul as a pastor. She doesn't know everything. People are a lot of times surprised that she doesn't have, like, some kind of fiber optic cable hooked to her brain and know everything that I know. I keep secrets pretty well most of the time. Um, But what's fascinating to me is is that she knows so much more than most people about the church and yet loves it all the more. And so I asked her if she would just come up and share a little bit, hey baby, uh, share a little bit for you guys about uh, her love for the church and how we ought to love one another next week. Josh asked me to do this and last night I was like, is nine minutes okay? He's like, no, two. 
I said, uh, is six minutes okay? He's like, no, two. I'm like, two minutes? Who can do anything in two minutes? I don't know. Um, but this morning, it was really funny because I was getting ready for church, and it's always crazy. I don't know if your house is. My house is, like, completely insane on Sunday mornings. And the dog got out, and then I grabbed shoes out of the bin. Shoe, I have an issue with shoes. I don't know where Maddie is. She knows that. And I put him in the car. I got the dog in the house, and we drove to church. And we go to breakfast on Sunday mornings, the boys and I. And I realized when I, we got there to get out of the car, I had two left feet, two left shoes. And I didn't know what to do. And I thought, well, if I need something, what do I do? I called the feed marks. <laughs> Plus, they have big feet. So um, I called Natalie, and I said, can you please bring me some shoes? I'm at church. I have no shoes. And she did. And that was just a, a striking example to me of how I needed more. And there again, the church helped me. Um, but we're really messy. And... Uh, Elle and I always laugh that we're a hot mess. And most of the time we're talking about our laundry room and our kitchen and stuff like that. But she and I both know that uh, that even can't, that can't light, what's that word? Um, That can't hold a light to how messy and dirty our hearts are. Um, And if you know yourself, which I'm sure all of you do, you're a hot mess too. Um, But that is one thing that I absolutely love about the local church the beauty of when a bunch of messy people um, function in a very healthy way together. It honors God and it it brings glory to him. Um, Most of my life, I have been involved in churches. I grew up with parents who loved their pastors, helped their pastors, taught Sunday school. We had this one church that we called the Blue Church until we started having to vacuum it every single Saturday night when I was like four. And so my sister and I called it Dirty Church. Because it was so brooches everywhere, so gross. But anyway, I saw my parents serve in that way and love their church and love messy people. And and, um, it was a great example to me. When I married Josh, I knew that we would see the inner workings of a church. And I've seen many pastors and their families resent the church and not love them anymore. And I prayed all the time. Whatever happens, I want to love your church and your people. Um, I didn't really think I needed the church that much until about five years ago. And five years ago this week, I was diagnosed with advanced stage breast cancer. And suddenly, I needed more. (laughs) I needed more than I ever needed before. Um, After one short afternoon, my world was just completely changed. And the church really stepped up. I was in a strange town where I didn't know very many people well. And I um, had a three-month-old, a three-year-old, and a five-year-old. And Josh was really busy. But... I, there I was suddenly in my kitchen standing there and planning my own funeral. And it was a, it was a very hard time. My world felt quite shattered. Um, I felt hopeless, but while I knew God's love and his sovereignty, I was angry and I was mad. Um, but God used the people of this church in particular to help me, to love me, to serve me, and to really bring me to my knees before God. Um, is this too long? I'm almost done. Promise. Promise. He's like... Um, So I would like to share with you a little bit about that experience in a personal way. Um, Shortly after I was diagnosed, we heard a knock on our door. I think it was the next day. And Scott was there just to be there, just because he knew we needed him there. Um, Lori Shaw sent cards to me every, I'm just going to try not to cry, every single week for like six months. I got a card in the mail. I knew it was from Lori. Um, Clara would sit with me in chemo. And it touched our family, these simple and meaningful, in very simple and meaningful ways. 
I had members like Judy Buss and Nancy and Pat and so many people bring me meals for like six months and it took a burden of having to feed my family off of me. It was a great service to our family. I had sweet fellow cancer patients like Tim Eddings who would always greet me with a big smile in the, in the lobby and he knew I felt like a train had run me over and he would not show me pity. We would laugh. We would, if you knew Tim, we would, um, we would joke and say really bad things, maybe not appropriate, about cancer. Um, and it was fun and he showed me great empathy. I had friends like Paula Fair who walked down the street near my house with me as I cried over the fact that I still had cancer in my lymph nodes and that I was scared to die and I was so angry. I had friends like Natalie Viedmark sit with me and plan out how to care for my family for the following months. When I really was like a zombie, I couldn't do it. I couldn't plan. Um, I had sweet friends like Mark and Paige bring, bring up Ian right after he was born to show us how there's hope and how sweet he was. It was very encouraging. All these people showed good friendship to us. I mean, many people didn't realize that bitterness had grown in my heart. I was angry. I was mad. Um, and bitterness started to grow the following years. I couldn't have more, ki- couldn't have more kids. I didn't feel like I was ever going to be normal again. I had this burden of like identity of cancer like on my back all the time. And to be honest, I would see people at church, and they would complain to me about their runny noses or their... Uh, bad jobs or their kids who didn't obey and I hated them for it because it's I was so focused on my own suffering I couldn't see the ability to care for anybody else but you all continue to care for me and as Josh and I tried to recover from this hard season we had people come around us pray for us encourage us to stay in the word um, I had many problems that was hard to admit many sins like bitterness and anger idols Um, But we had friends in this church who came around us and encouraged us to love one another and to seek him, to spur us on to righteousness, and to call on the Lord when we needed him. We are so grateful for that. And what a lovely, as I was writing this, I thought, what a lovely glimpse of heaven you all have been to us and to me. Um, I love the idea that we have sand in our shoes here on earth. It's not our home. It's uncomfortable. Um, and so until we reach heaven, where the messy, the hot mess, will be gone, um, I urge you to, in, to join in, to embrace what God has given us in um, the local church. It's beautiful. It's messy. Um, come and serve and love and reconcile and rebuke and forgive and care for one another, um, as I have seen you all do for me. Thank you.